welcome back. It's episode seven of The Build. Thanks for tuning back in. If this is your first time, thanks for finding it, I guess. Thank the person who you found it from. Unless it's me. Don't do that. That's gross. Um, if this isn't your first time, welcome back. Um, you've made it to episode seven. Seven weeks ago this started, and you're still here. That's crazy. As you know, I record these on Monday. Today's a little bit earlier. I took the day off. Because yesterday, I was at a hockey game. I went to the, um, I saw the Canadians play the Devils in a shootout loss. The first time I've ever seen an NHL shootout in person. That's pretty cool. Um, but it's funny, I came back from that. We stayed at a, we stayed in a hotel down in Newark. And I came back and Twitter was talking about the Oscars, as I, th- I expected was going to happen. But I think along with everybody else, didn't expect to see what ultimately transpired, I thought about naming this episode um, Will Smith Smacks Chris Rock, taking advice from Steve Dangle just to help out the SEO of this uh, of this episode. Decided against it, probably in poor taste, considering all of the discourse going around right now. Um, as with everything else, everything else of this magnitude that isn't like super important to have a hill to die on, especially for people who look like me. Um, it's okay to not have an opinion. <laughs> it's okay to not have a, a hot take. Judd Apatow, who tweeted, he could, Will Smith could have killed him, which is hilarious. If you're going to have an opinion now, I guess you can take solace in the fact that, uh, this was a tweet I saw, that you can take solace in the fact that no take will be funnier than He could have killed him Um, because maybe, (laughs) you know, like you can't, the chances of him killing, the chances of Will Smith killing Chris Rock at the Oscars are low. They're not zero with that slap, but they're very low. Um, So especially for people of my pigment, you're allowed to just shut up. There's nothing... There's nothing that was going to happen at the Oscars that would have required you to have an opinion. So it's okay to shut up. I And I hope people don't take that as, I want you to shut up. I feel like with with Twitter the way it is, you have to have an opinion on something. And then it just sort of, these things reach critical mass where it's just, you can't just have an opinion. You have to have a wild opinion so that it, it reaches... A, a larger audience and it goes above all of the other opinions you can just shut up and listen to the build thank you that was my ted talk um so i'll get to that game on sunday night later because i, I you know i'm at a game it's it's a it's the first time in three years i saw the canadians play um but i there are some things that, that happened with the canadians over the last week that i want to talk about some things over the last week, some things I just learned about now that I'm bringing up. And that, that kind of leads me to this first topic. Um, Adam Nicholas, not a, not, it was a hire that the Canadians made that I don't think a lot of people have, um, really gone into a ton of depth on, um, as long as, you know, as far as him being with the Canadians and what his role ultimately is, he was hired by Montreal as the director of hockey development on March 4th. I find that title in it in and of itself interesting um because it's not player development if you go to the canadians website and you go to their front office and you start scrolling through all the the names 
you'll you'll come to player development first, and that's where you'll see um, Rob Ramage and uh, Francis Bouillon listed under player development. But below that, you'll see hockey development, and that's where Adam Nicholas is. Um, you know, for those who don't know, he was a skills coach, although he doesn't really, I don't think he likes the term skills coach. Um, he was running his own stuff for a while. He was working with the Maple Leafs when the Canadians hired him. Um, I think he was more of a consultant role with the Leafs. Um, but I found this on the Habs subreddit, r slash Habs, that about a year ago, he had an interview on a podcast called The Next Shift Podcast. I'm going to link the full episode in the description because I it was a fascinating listen. As someone who... Myself, I don't understand a lot of the X's and O's of hockey. Adam Nicholas kind of throws all that away. He's not really concerned with a lot with structure or anything like that, which we'll get into a little bit. But um, the full episode's in the description. Please go listen to it once you're done here, or you know, at some point. It's it's not time sensitive because you know it was recorded a year ago. It's more so just his thoughts on the way that hockey is taught to young hockey players and how that impacts their development which is a huge, I think, step forward for the current organization is that they need to do better by their prospects. Um, so I don't want to rip off the entire show, but I have some notes that I took from it that I wanted to you know, pass along. Um, we've already seen um, Adam Nicholas once on the ice. I'm sure we've seen him before, but as soon as the Canadians acquired Justin Barron, he was working with Adam Nicholas one-on-one in practice. Um, I actually in a separate practice. Um, and I think what they were working on is that there's a video of it out there, but essentially they were trying to keep him. Um, I think it was his posture while he was skating and just kind of, you know, figuring that out because to, to, to make him a more effective skater, it, it seems that the Canadians, when they acquired him, they might've seen something in his skating and went, Hey, this is something that we think we can fix. And maybe, you know, that's a, I think, a pretty decent market inefficiency. If you can find a player who is potentially like one skill fix away from, you know, being a true NHL player, um, that's that's something that you know the Canadians can spend money on skills development. They can do that. They never did under the last um, era of management, but that's something that they can do moving forward. So, just some notes from that that Next Shift podcast that came out in March of twenty twenty one. Um, Adam Nicholas, he gave a little bit of background. He said he grew up without a dad and he was looking, he looked to hockey for father figures. Um, ultimately I think he felt a little disenchanted by that because he, you know, as he goes on to say that a lot of coaches are largely in it for themselves. Um, they don't really care for the development of players. He talked about, you know, he played D3 college hockey in the United States. You know, he, he was saying how, you know, a coach would tell him, He's on the team and then cut him and then bring him back and then not play him and then cut him again. Like it was just, it, it seemed like he was being jerked around in that system. It would have been really easy for him to just say, ah, this isn't for me and quit, but he didn't. Um, he talks about how um, the motor skill differences. So motor skills being, you know, your physical movement. Um, the motor skill differences between first liners and fourth liners in the NHL is really, really small. And the difference is this, and I'll quote him here directly. He says, quote, 
Um, timing elements, understanding of the playing surface, and understanding how to relocate to a positive setting to the, use the tools you built at a high frequency. That's where the big difference is between those players. Um, and right there, without saying it, I'm already kind of thinking reads. You know, Marty St. Louis has talked about the idea of playing um, structured hockey and and re and using reads to develop plays to make plays happen um, and I thought that was interesting and then you know he goes on to say structure isn't the game when structure breaks down then what happens that's where hockey lives because um, every team in this league is going to have a structure that they play they're going to have a the, the bare bones of if I'm here you know I'm expecting that teammates will be here here and here but when that breaks down that's when you that's at least this and this is me talking. It seems like that's when the team aspect of the game turns turns into the individual aspect of the game. So, you know, like when a Connor McDavid or an Austin Matthews is on the ice and the structure around them breaks down, they can probably just by by sheer will of their own play can make something happen even though that structure has fallen apart. Um I imagine on the defensive side of the game, that means when structure falls apart, a defenseman can learn, you know, how to possibly pull it back together, find another man, get get in coverage again. Um, so it seems like he Adam Nicholas believes that hockey happens when um, when that structure breaks down. Then what? Um, he says a lot of coaches don't really like skills coaches, and I think and he goes on to say that like, you know the because a skills coach will work on the same thing over and over and over again with a player. And, you know, and it's a drill where you're cutting through cones and taking a shot on net and you, you'll get really good at it. And it'll look like you mastered it um, because you're just skating through cones and shooting an uncontested shot at the net. You should be able to do that if you practice it enough where that, where that skills coaching fails is then transferring that onto the on ice product during a game when you're not going to get that uncontested shot. They're not cones. They're human beings who move around. Um, so, you know, I understand his his whole thing of, uh, you know, skills coaches have a bad name, but it seems like skills coaches that focus on just one, indi just individual drills could have that that impact. And I think that, that a lot of coaches don't really like skills coaches um, line from, from Nicholas. I think that that tracks with the old school mentality that the Habs used to have. They didn't have any skills coaches under... Um, the last general manager. So he he goes on to define skill, and I think this is a really fascinating description of it. The ability to use a tool in a constantly changing condition to gain an advantage. So I'll, I'll read that again. The ability to use a tool in constantly changing conditions to gain an advantage. So uh, to me, again, that just screams reads. And I think he ultimately ends up saying it he said, structure is not hockey. It's a team style of play. And then, quote, if you can teach the game of hockey inside that with reads and how to have shared cognitive movement with your teammates outside of the structure, that's the game of hockey. So, again, you're, you're, you build a structure, and then within that structure, those players have to have the freedom to read off of each other. Um, we're seeing that already with Suzuki and Caulfield, how they just sort of know where each other is going to be. Um, that's going to be fun to see develop over the next 
hopefully very, very many years. But the one thing I, t- I took away from that, and it's it's really fascinating if you don't know a whole lot about, um, you know, the X's and O's of hockey, because I don't think he, I don't think Adam Nicholas puts a ton of stock in, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the one, three, one neutral zone trap or things like that. He's not an X's and O's guy. He is very passionate. Um, this isn't a guy who I think is just collecting a paycheck. This is a guy who really cares about what he's doing. He said it many times that when he, you know, he had, he, he was doing this skills coaching for a while and he, ste- you know, he, he wasn't really proud of what he was doing. And then he took a step back and he, he became a student of the game again. He started to understand what hockey is. He wanted to kind of look at, you know, and it sounds like such a, uh, you know, a, a, a 100 level philosophy class question, but what is hockey? Trying to figure it out ex- exactly like what the game is meant to be. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, you know, I think that in doing that, he realizes um, that the way he was doing it wasn't great and that he needed to change. And I think he 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 feels very passionately that the way that he's doing it now, um, you know, if done correctly, uh, could really help players succeed. He also says that it's not for everybody. Like, or I not not that it's not for everybody, but that, you know, not every lesson is going to be perfect. He said he's he gets messages from players like, hey, I didn't really like that lesson. Can we try something new? And he adapts to what they want to do and try to make them better hockey players. So it's a really fascinating lesson. He's a really passionate guy. Um, I can't recommend it enough for anybody who might be sort of on the fringes of understanding, you know, the, the, the sort of the nuances that go, go into how a, a hockey player becomes an NHL player. But um, really, really interesting stuff. I, I recommend it. Again, the link will be in the description of this episode. Um, so go check that out. All right. So that was in my notebook, so I'm switching back to another sheet of paper. Sorry. Um, another thing that's sort of... Pro- <laughs> I hate talking about this sort of thing. But another thing that's sort of popped up over the last little while is um, there's the Canadians fan base always seems to have to have some sort of dichotomy um, surrounding one player. Um, The way I always think about it is there's always going to be a Lars Eller on this hockey team where half the fan base loves him, thinks he's underrated, um, wants to see more of him, and the other half can't give him the time of day. a lot of times that the, the the player that gets picked, and there have been others, but a lot of the times that player, um, the line, you know, the Venn diagram between the two of those players could also just be the analytics versus eye test crowd. Um, and they switch sides on the player. So in that case, you know, with Lars Eller, the analytics side was very heavily behind Lars Eller because he was a very strong player possession-wise, um, defensively a really strong center, Um probably had more offense in him than the team was giving was willing to give him um but and you know another player that left Montreal wondering what his role was that player right now isn't the exact same archetype as Lars Eller um I think that player right now is Josh Anderson it seems like um the fan base every time he struggles the fan base splits on him where half think he's still you know one of the top power forwards in the NHL, although I doubt he was ever that. And some of him, some some any or some fans seem to think that he's, you know, not 
not even really a top six forward, which again, I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, when he's on his game, teams really seem to be afraid of him. Um, he's not in an, not in an enforcer way, but in like an unstoppable force way where he's just going to, he's going to come up the wing. He's going to put his shoulder down. He's going to beat you to the net. Saw a glimpse of it on Sunday in, um, New Jersey. He had a rush to the net where that he did just that. He put his shoulder down, came from left to right. Um, he didn't really get a great shot, but just to, to see that speed from him again, he did score on Sunday. Um, on a deflection off of a great one-time shot from Jesse uh, Ulinen. So hopefully that sparks him a little bit. Um, second half of a back-to-back is always tough. But when he's off, he's invisible. And, you know, that's – it's tough for – it's a big deal for two reasons. One, he's huge. So when he's not doing anything, you go, who's that tree on the ice who's not doing anything? Um and and the second reason is he's on the top line with the two most electric players on the team right now. If you can't create with those guys, you kind of have to wonder what you're doing there. Um, and, you know, th- those two players and Nick Suzuki and Cole Caulfield, they can kind of buoy Josh Anderson and make him look a lot better than he is um, when he's struggling, which is good for Josh because he kind of gets to hide behind those two players. Maybe they help him catch his, his, um, his breath again. Um, but when he's struggling, you do you do notice it. Like it's not, I I'm a, I like Josh Anderson the hockey player. I like Josh Anderson the person. When he's off, you know you know it. You know he's off. Um, and that I think you know goes goes to the fact that like he is a very solitary hockey player. Um, he and I'll get into that a little bit more. But the contract that he's under has the a real chance to be a bit of a stinker down the stretch. He's got five more years after this one at five and a half million per season. An eight team no trades uh for two seasons after this one. Um and then a five team no trade for three seasons after that. Um this has a real this contract has a real chance to be a real stinker in years four through six. Um just because the the dollar number is actually higher than what he's being, what his salary or his um his AAV is against the salary cap. Um, year seven is the best one because that AAV or his his AAV is five and a half million, but the actual salary is down to three and a half. So if it's real bad at the end, you can probably deal him to a team who has an internal cap. Um, you know. Again, he has that modified no trade, so he'll probably have those teams on that list. But that's not to say that he you can't trade him because no trade clauses don't mean anything. Evgeny Dadanov, um, notwithstanding, apparently. Um, I think that Josh Anderson, like you know, not not in the same sense as Lars Eller, but just you know the same sort of narrative around him. I think it's another player who is not anywhere near as bad as people make him out to be, but he's not anywhere near as good as people make him out to be. Um, I think your interest in Josh Anderson kind of says a lot about you as a fan. Um, I think there's, he's a, he's an old school kind of player. Um, although I do think that there are some underlying numbers that look a little bit more favorable for him. And there are a lot that do not. Um, for that, I go to natural stat trick linked in the description obviously but if you don't know who they are it's really just a it's a resource where they they ha- they keep all of the, the 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 underlying numbers for 
uh, NHL players. And there's no, it's data. It's not presented in a way, you know, everyone talk, everyone always shares the J fresh, um, cards or, you know, some of the other sort of, um, data visualizations, which I think are an effective tool, but a lot of times that they're just presented and people go, you know, blue, good, red, bad, player, bad. Like, and it's, I, I don't, I don't like looking at hockey that way where a card is just going to tell me how good a player is. And I just have to accept that at face value. Um, I don't think anybody should read into hockey that way. And I don't think that's the reason those cards were created. I don't think those cards were created to be an end all be all resource for every single player in the NHL. Um, so I'm not a I'm not a critic of the analytics community. I very much believe in a lot of what they have to say. I feel like a lot of the arguments that they make are twisted by the the you know the the, the old school um, mindset where it's you know well they don't tell us everything. Well, they were never supposed to. So get over that. Um, but you know, looking at natural stat trick, you can look by um, players on each team. And if you look at the on-ice numbers, so that's just how does the team do while this player is on the ice? The Canadians' numbers are all bad. And the reason for that is they're not a good hockey team. We know this. There's not really much to be gleaned from those numbers. I'm not saying the whole season's a throwaway from a statistical standpoint. You can find things in there that matter. Um, but, you know, in expected um, goals for while players are on the ice, there are four players over 50% and three of them have played 13 or fewer games. So I I don't think there's much to be gleaned from that. And Josh Anderson's on ice numbers, like, like everybody else on this team are not good. Um, you know, his other numbers like the Corsi four, even games where the Canadians are in it in the score uh, on the scoreboard, like the last two games against Toronto, especially Toronto and New Jersey, New Jersey, where the shot totals ended up being really close. They got pounded in possession because a lot of pucks were just not a lot of pucks were being fired and not hitting the net or in the case of the Toronto game, were hitting the net. Um, you know, and, and that's OK, because this team right now is like 55 percent AHL forwards <laughs> and the defense is even more shocking. Um so Josh Anderson's five-on-five five expected goals uh, percentage. For those who don't know, expected goals is just sort of a metric that they they combine. It's got a hard count, so there's you, and I'll get to that in a second. There's a count of expected goals. Um, you know, a lot of times you'll see a player who scores a, a a goal in a game, and their expected goals at five-on-five five is not anywhere near their 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 actual goals. Um, usually, it's a lot lower. Um, it's just a metric that's used to determine if all things were equal, how often does this shot go in? How often does this shot go in? And when you take it as a percentage, you're taking, you know, your the amount of times that you had an expected goal over the total expected goals for the game. Um, so Josh Anderson this year on, at 5-on-5 five five has an expected goals for percentage of about 46%. Um, he's 14th on the team in total, but 10th when you consider just the regulars on the team. So Kale Clegg, I have him as the bottom of that list. It's like 23, uh, 23 skaters. Um, so not good. Any number under 50 there means you're playing losing hockey, right? So if, if you're expected to have 46% of the, the goals, you're expected to be 
are leading 46% of the time or scoring 46% of the time, I should say. But at five on five, his individual expected goals for, this is that hard count where it's just sort of players racking up individually expected goals for. He's second on the team behind Arturi Lekkinen. Arturi Lekkinen had a little bit over 11. Josh Anderson has 10.39. And Arturi Lekkinen's not here anymore. And I imagine that the next closest forward is Brandon Gallagher, who's been hurt. I would imagine Anderson is going to finish the season in first place on the Canadians in five-on-five individually expected goals for. And I think that tracks with the kind of player that Josh Anderson is. It's telling us exactly what we're seeing. This is the analytics matching the eye test. Um, He plays a very individual game. Um, I think it was uh, at Womax on Twitter. A while ago, this tweet has been stuck in my head for a really long time. Josh Anderson plays alone, which... When you are a Josh Anderson type and you are on top of your game and you're rolling, that's fine. You know, I don't I don't have any issues with a guy like him trying to put the team on his back. The problem then becomes when you aren't playing so well and you can't make plays and feed off of the guys around you. Um so again, this season, it's tough to read any of those underlying numbers because they're all just going to be brutal. And I'm not saying that's a reason to just throw the data out. I'm just saying that's what they're going to look like. Um, this team was really bad for a really long time. They're still kind of getting killed in those numbers. And again, that's just because this is an unfinished product. Um, but let's circle back on this. I'm, I'm interested to see, you know, this is going to be a topic for a long time. He's not going anywhere for a while. So it'll be interesting to see how that contract plays out, how he's able to, um, you know, create value for the Canadians, potentially as a trade piece, potentially as a guy who stays on the roster. So we'll see. Uh, speaking of trade pieces, I wanted to talk a little bit about the trades that didn't happen. There was two that the Canadians have been rumored in. Um, the first being a potential trade of Shea Weber's contract. Um, if Steve Dangle is to be believed, and I think other insiders had this, I couldn't find anything. Um, I'm surprised it wasn't in 32 Thoughts. Montreal and Arizona allegedly had a deal to send Shea Weber's contract to the Coyotes, but again, this is Steve Dangle saying that he was told this. Um, the league vetoed it, essentially. Um, they, and again, if Steve is to be believed, and I'm not saying Steve's lying, maybe his, if his, if his information is to be believed. Um, the idea was that it was going to be a bad look for the league if Arizona was eating another contract, and especially because it's Montreal, like, it becomes a big topic. Um, and you can tell Arizona was trying to use their cap space to buy a dead contract because then they turned around and they traded for Brian Little's contract out of Winnipeg. Um, with that said, I don't think that trading Shea Weber's contract is dead in the water. I think the Canadians do want to get out from underneath that. Um, even though they're in the, the LTIR space, I kind of, I kind of think that they just want to simplify their salary cap structure, um, to get him off of that, um, off of that long-term injured reserve to, to rid themselves of that deal. And I think it gets done over the summer. He's got, Shea Weber's got four seasons left on his deal. Um, that cap hit is like 7.8 something, which is still brutal. I can't believe that. Um, but He's he's only owed six million dollars 
total over those four years. He's owed $3 million next year in salary, no signing bonus. And then the following, the last three years of the deal come in at $1 million salary. Like, so it, it makes sense for a team who has an internal cap, who may be trying to reach the cap or the salary floor. Don't say cap floor. Cap floor makes no sense. It's like saying ceiling floor. There's no such thing as a ceiling floor. It's the salary floor. Um, or potentially a team who can, who may be at the, at the point of free agency where they can fit him under the cap, um, can then fit him under the cap, put him on LTIR, and then use his LTIR overage to spend more money on free agents. Um, I still, I think that that's a re- either one of those. I think is where we're headed here. It's either a team who needs to use it for reaching the salary floor, or it's a team that will use it to, um, you know, fit him under the cap, then use his LTIR space to sign more players. I think that's where we're headed. It really just did. I I wonder what I think if you're trading him to a team that needs to reach the salary floor. Um, I don't think that there's much value to the Canadians in trading him there. So I, I wonder, you know, I wonder what that trade even looks like. Like, are there any assets exchanged? Meanwhile, a team that's trying to then use that cap hit to to, you know, make their team better. Maybe they have to give up more to do it. I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see how Hughes manages this um, because it's not going to be an easy contract to move. And speaking of another difficult contract to move, the second trade that was reported that never really happened was Colin White um, coming to Montreal from Ottawa. Um, this one, Elliot Friedman did write about in Thirty Two Thoughts, um, and I'll just quote him directly here: "Quote something to keep an eye on, Colin White and Montreal." Canadian's general manager, Kent Hughes, represented White negotiating his current contract with the Senators. There were conversations, and for a time, a few sources expected it to happen. We will see if this gets revisited. Um, This is an interesting one. Um, Colin White is a center for the Senators. Sorry. He's making $4.75 million um, per season for the next three years after this one. Um, Like I said, he's a... He's a center. He's got seven points in 15 games. It seems like that's a change of scenery deal. And I wonder if maybe this is something after they've gotten a good look at Christian Dvorak, if they think maybe that makes sense. Um, he's a younger player than Dvorak. He's 25, but Dvorak's got a cheaper deal, at least in cap hit. Um, for Dvorak's got four point four five million. That would be going back the other way. I, I don't. This is where I start to get a little concerned with the team potentially falling in love with the pieces they already loved. Um, you know, we we joke that well. Kent Hughes is Kent Hughes used to be Patrice Bergeron's agent, so it makes sense if he goes and signs uh, Patrice Bergeron over the summer to come and play in Montreal. I think that there's a chance that that hurts coming back the other way where guys like Colin White get big deals in Montreal are, 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 you know, making a lot of money in Montreal just because Kent Hughes is in charge. I don't think that's a realistic concern yet. Um, and it, 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 I don't think it hurts to think that Kent Hughes knows that there's more in this player than what Ottawa is getting out of him. Um, Nothing ever goes right in Ottawa for anybody. So 
there's a really good chance he's a better player than what he's shown for the Senators. But we'll see. I think that this is a trade that potentially gets done at the draft. Um, but uh, again, I don't I don't know much about the player. The cap hit worries me. He's making almost five million bucks for the next three years, and he's putting up. He hasn't played much this season. He's about half a point per game right now. Um, so you know you can prorate that to about forty one points if he plays a whole season. But injuries are a legitimate concern. All right. Let me talk about the game I went to yesterday. Um, that was my first Canadians game in over three years. The last one I went to was a Devils game, I think, in 2018. That was right before Thanksgiving, U.S. Thanksgiving. Um, and it was the first Canadians loss I ever saw. So I was hoping to, to get over that this time. Um, on paper, this was probably the worst game I've seen. Um, but heading into it, like... The only Canadians that I that I've on the ice that I've seen before were Paul Byron, PK Subban, and Thomas Tatar, and two of them were playing for the Devils. So it wasn't there were a lot of guys I hadn't seen live before. Uh, I got to see Cole Caulfield and Nick Suzuki, which was great. Cole Caulfield scored in uh, the shootout, which was really cool. Um, of course, they tied the game in the last minute, which was great. The last not the last time I was at a game in Newark, but the time before that was great. I saw I saw both times that the Canadians played in Newark. It was the season Radulov was in Montreal because I saw I think I think he played two games. Yeah, they played two games in Newark that year and I think Radulov had 7 points. Like he was just a dominant against the Devils. Uh, that's why I got a Radulov jersey is because he was that good that year <laughs> and I got to see him live score 7 points in two games. Um but in that game as well, the Canadians tied the game in the last the last couple seconds um and then they they ultimately ended up winning it in overtime this one they weren't so lucky that shootout went long um a note on devils fans um uh, first of all the canadians take a lot of crap for um being obsessed with their history the entire like in-game experience is for the the new jersey devils is just based on the guys that aren't here anymore like Ken Danico, they showed Kirk Muller on on the on the board at some point. Um, you know Ken Danico, Chico Resch, Patrick Eliash, Matt, Marty Brodeur. Like they just they they are infatuated with their own history to a point where I think it's it's almost to spite what they have on the ice. Jack Hughes is amazing, like one of one of the greatest players I've ever seen in person. Every time he picked up the puck, I was afraid he was going to score. Um, and they just seem completely obsessed with their past. Like, if you ever go to a game there, it, it's kind of weird how, you know, Montreal gets this this reputation that, oh, they just care about, you know, the glory days and everything. But they, like, there's not a ton of marketing around the arena or in the arena for the players that they have now. They've got P.K. Subban on their team, and I know he's not the same player, but he's still the same personality. And, like, just nothing. It was very bizarre. Shout out to the Devils fan. Three sections over to my left behind the net, behind Montembeau's net for the first and third periods, who started two separate FU Canada chants. And the second one, the staff came down and escorted him to the top of the section where they gave him a stern talking to and then let him come back. Um, 
I was kind of hoping he well, either A, was going to be ejected, or B, if the Canadians ended up winning, I was going to stand there and point and laugh at him until he left. But he left before the game ended. There were so many people, and I know it's to beat traffic, but it's in Newark. There's nobody there. It was so confusing to me. Like, in overtime, Josh, or Josh Anderson, no, Mike Hoffman hit both posts, and he thought he scored, and they were reviewing it. And as they were reviewing it, Devils fans were leaving. And I, I was sitting right on the right on the goal line, essentially. I knew immediately that puck didn't go in. And I was screaming at Mike Hoffman. And I'll get into Mike Hoffman in a minute. I was screaming, like, turn around. He skated right past the puck where he could have just tapped it into the net. And Devils fans were just leaving. <laughs> like, it was, it was really, really bizarre. Um, and that's not the first time. So th- that, that FU, Dev- or FU Canada guy, he was wearing a Marty Brodeur jersey. And it was the second time that's happened to me. The first time it was ever at Prudential. That was in like the Camilleri Gianta years. Um, some guy in my section started like berating my dad and I, yelling at us like, and that was when Marty Brodeur was playing. I got to see him lose. But he was like, he was yelling like, Brodeur's American now. Canada's terrible. Canada's terrible. And like, I understand like that's, part and parcel of like being the fan of a Canadian team in America. But like, it's just, it's so old and uh, like devil's fans are like, I, I, it seemed like they shared one brain cell the whole night. It was free hat night. They gave out like military appreciation hats, which I promptly left under my seat. Um, Jack Hughes had two goals in regulation. If he had scored a third in regulation, I was throwing that hat on the ice. When he scored in the shootout, everyone threw their hats on the ice. And Nick Suzuki had the, like, I'm not sure if they showed it on TV, but Nick Suzuki was getting ready to shoot like three or four times, and he had to back off because they had to keep cleaning hats off the ice because these morons think that's a hat trick. Like, one of the most absurd things I've ever seen. Um... You know, there's the, 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 the it, some of this stuff is just like part and parcel of being an away fan in any building. But like every time Jack Hughes fell down, they expected a penalty to be called. He he ran. <laughs> uh, Jake Evans at the end of regulation hit him pretty hard into the boards. Clean hit. It was just a solid hit. Hughes got up and tried to throw another hit. And Jake Evans very much said, no, you won't. And threw him onto the ice. It was just a reverse hit because I think Evans had the puck at that point, and they all expected a penalty to be called. Like it was just insane. Um, when Cole Caulfield took that bump into the boards when they were already on the power play, um, and you know Nick, Suzuki, I was very happy to see Nick Suzuki stand up for him. It seems like that's going to be a thing that we see moving forward. But they were all like flabbergasted that you can't hit a guy into the boards when he doesn't have the puck. Like it was just it's insane, especially that. Compared with what we saw on Saturday night against Toronto, where Austin Matthews can't get breathed on without Leafs fans thinking that the player should be ejected, that the the play that set up the game-winning goal on Saturday, where Matthews is skating backwards into Paul Byron and falls down, and we expect Leaf fans expect that to be a penalty on Paul Byron for going for a loose puck. There's not a more entitled fan fan base in the league than those guys. Anyway, back to the game that I saw. Um, I had money on Pitlick and Dvorak. Um, 
the over under for points for them was set at 0.5, which means I took the over and they both needed to score a point and they did it on the last play of regulation, which was pretty great. So I hit on those. Um, let's see. Yeah, cover that. Oh, I got to see uh, the great DF Pandries, who I know is a big supporter of the show. It was great to meet them. Um, Twitter friends can be real life friends. So it was great to see DF at the game. Um, Kristen, my fiance, and I, we, we saw them at the bottom of our section waiting for warm-ups to start. And the only reason I, I knew it was them is they were wearing a Soraya Tanker um, uh, Riveters jersey, which is a great, a great, if you were a neutral fan going to that game, that's the, I think that's the jersey you wear because uh, the, the Rivs, I think they still play out of Barnabas, the ice center, the ice, the, the, the devil's practice ice next door. I saw a game there a few years ago. So it's great seeing Pendries meet up with real-life friends if you feel comfortable doing so. It's uh, it's a cool thing. Um, and I already touched on this, but Mike Hoffman is, I think, in the same boat as Josh Anderson right now, um, where he's just very frustrating to watch. I've always kind of been real frustrated with Mike Hoffman, and especially so after this game. Um, he was, and I, this isn't an exaggeration, when that puck hit both posts and came out in overtime... Mike Hoffman was the only person in Newark who thought he scored. The only one. He turned around and celebrated. His teammates were kind of like, all right, I think he thinks it's in, so I guess we'll stop playing. No whistle went. The red light didn't go on, and he just stopped, which is just, you cannot do that. <laughs> like, I, I understand he's in the middle of a goal drought, and that would have been really cool if he put that in. The, the rebound off that second post kind of just died on the ice. He literally, if he didn't turn around, he would have tapped in the game winner. And I, I would, like I said, I was sitting on the goal line. I knew immediately that puck didn't go in. Like, what are we doing here? And they took a quick look at it. And obviously it went off both posts and came out. Um, generally speaking, he's been real tough to watch recently. He's a, he's a one trick pony. And when that one trick isn't working, it's, it's real tough to watch him. He's not a playmaker. His passing is very frustrating because a lot of times he just uh, doesn't do it. He'll circle back in the neutral zone. He forces teammates to go off sides constantly because he wait, he makes one extra move at the blue line instead of just putting the puck into an area where another winger can go get it. Um, he makes $4.5 million for the next two seasons. This is a contract that I... I've, and it's tough because he's probably got like no value right now. But Kenny Hughes has to try to move this deal. Um, I I'm a believer in in the the top end contracts aren't the ones that kill you. The Suzuki making almost eight isn't going to kill you. Um, you know, it, it's the it's the four through six million dollar deals that I think kill you because they either are steals like Tyler Toffoli or they're disasters like Hoffman. I don't think he's too much of a disaster right now. It's just he's got no value on a team that has no value. Um, but it has the chance to be that. Um, the Carl Alsners of the world. Like, you're in that price range, you're either overpaying for a low-end guy or underpaying for a top-end guy. There's really no in-between. So those are the those are the numbers I'm real worried about. Um, and, you know, you, you look at teams with different salary cap structures like Toronto, they have a ton of high-end, high-paid players, and they really don't have a middle class on that team. Um, that that leads to its own problems. The Canadians, if you have too many middle class guys, 
you have no real top end and those middle class guys can often disappoint you. Um, so that's a deal that I'd really try to move on from this this offseason if you can. Um, what else happened in that game? I'm trying to think. Uh, I don't think much else. It was really boring for a while, but, um, you know, the second half of a back-to-back, the play got real sloppy towards the end. Um, I thought Montembeau was good, except for that first play where or the, the play in the first period where he just passed the puck directly to Jack Hughes, which was like the worst player on the ice he could have caught the puck up to. I, I tweeted during the, the warm-up, you know, that I'm not usually a, a warm-ups are important kind of guy, but Montembeau did not look good in the warm-up. Like he, he, I think he made more saves in the first period than he did in the warm-up period. Um, and I, that's something that I think I've heard other people say that like he doesn't warm up well. Like it just doesn't look like he's really all that into it. Um, but generally speaking, he has a terrible first period and then he rebounds later on. He had a good first. He had a good second. He had a good third. He hung them in in the, the shootout. The thing that was most frustrating at the end of that game was the Devils goalie, I don't think, made a save in the shootout because Suzuki missed the net. Armia hit the post, so missed the net, and I think Byron missed the net. Nico Dawes, the goalie for the Devils, didn't make a save. Montembeau made saves. Um, so it's kind of, it's it's tough. The shootout's a crapshoot. Um, like I said, that was the first one I had ever seen, so it was, it was kind of neat, but you lose the tie. All right, I think I've talked enough. Um, that's all I got. Thanks for listening. Please share it if you liked it. Send it to your friends. Um post it other places i don't know get creative i don't care put on a bumper sticker i won't i won't copyright claim that that's fine um you can follow me on twitter at maybe it's ian uh at rabbit Habs for the blog um i'll be on game over montreal again with andrew berkshire soon i was on what game was that the arizona game um i'll be back on soon i'm not gonna give away the dates because they might change but keep an eye out for it i'll be back um i'll tweet out links you can come hang out in the chat with Andrew and I, it was a good time. I, I, and again, to the people who um, came and watched that show just for me, thank you. I really appreciate that. Like, sometimes I, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not someone who needs validation. Um, I'm talking to myself into a microphone right now. Um, but it meant a lot that people, um, they weren't coming to hear about the Canadians. They were coming to hear me. So thank you. That, that means more than I think I could ever put into words. So. If you support my work in any way, I really appreciate it. All right. I'm not going to be nice anymore. That's that's gross. Uh, check the description for links to things I mentioned in the show, the Next Shift podcast, and I'll put everything else down there as well that I talked about. Uh, the music you heard at the beginning of the show and you're hearing right now is Inside by Fred Mugg. Uh, check the description for a link to his Bandcamp page and listen to the rest of his stuff. It's really good. All right, guys. Take care. We'll talk next week. Bye. Bye.